Welcome to AgTech360, where we take a 360-degree view into emerging agriculture technologies of today and tomorrow. Our host, Adrian Percy, helps us to create robust dialogue among stakeholders in academia, industry, and extension, including researchers, growers, producers, and the overall agriculture sustainability community. AgTech 360 is brought to you by North Carolina State University, CIRSA, the Center of Excellence for Regulatory Science in Agriculture, and the Southern IPM Center. This is AgTech 360 with Adrian Percy, and today I'm delighted to have Ingrid Fung with Finisterre Ventures, and Ingrid joins us from Toronto in Canada. Welcome, Ingrid. Thanks for giving up some time. Thanks for having me. I know that you're investment director with Finisterre Ventures, and Finisterre is one of the more experienced, very well-known agri-food venture capital funds. And you spent now over a decade in ag tech innovation and entrepreneurship, which is uh, fantastic. And you're actually involved with a number of Finisterre's investments, including a couple of companies that we've already had guests on this pod, including High Fidelity Genetics out of Durham and Biolumic out of New Zealand. Now, within the Finisterre firm, you have a focus on life science technologies, particularly, of course, around food and ag. But you're also the author of the annual ag tech review that they do that is really informative. But beyond that, you're very passionate about public science communication and diversity and inclusion in STEM. You've got a degree in developmental biology from the University of Toronto and a master's in molecular biology from the University of Western Ontario, right? Yeah. This is impressive, Ingrid, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I originally thought I would be a lab rat, but uh, funny enough, ended up in venture, so. <laughs> How did you get into the ag tech space? Do you have a background in agriculture or, or are you coming from a completely different place to that? So um, my, my graduate work specialized really on plant-pest interactions with a cell and molecular biology focus. So I spent a lot of time you know, screening tomato lines, looking for resistance, resistant lines and doing things like you know, characterizing transcriptional responses. So the research I did was an application science. And what I had sought out to do before I started grad school was really seek out research and degrees where I felt like I could be working on something that had impact in the world or would have an application that could be interesting and useful. No disrespect to people that do, you know, fundamental scientific research, but I think I'm probably a little bit more impatient than those folks and wanted to kind of see an application for the work that I was doing. You know, the way I ended up in ag tech was that after I had finished my master's degree, I really decided to take a pause and figure out what industry looked like. I knew I didn't want to become an academic. I knew that I wanted to be at that translation point between science and something application focused and useful. Being someone that had spent most of their life in academia doing research, I had no idea what that looked like. I actually picked up the phone and cold called and found people's names on LinkedIn and just kind of asked them to talk to me. Hey, you have a scientific background. You sound like you have a job that relates to the application of science. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do and, and who you are? And one thing led to another and I got an initial job in business development. But less than a year into that, I met actually the CEO of an ag tech accelerator who was like, you have a background in plant science. You seem really passionate about translational research and it seems like commercialization would be interesting to you. So why don't you come work for me instead of doing business development for a pharmaceutical company and see if there's something here that you like. And I took the job. It required, I think, about an hour hour to an hour and a half drive each way from Toronto to Guelph, which is an ag hub here in Canada. But it was a great experience.
experience. It let me build up networks in ag. I spent just under two years working for Bioenterprise, the accelerator, before I actually met one of Finister Ventures LPs who was about to make an anchor investment in their second fund. You know, met them in a conference. Funny enough, like a lot of things in science happened over beers. Got a call a couple months later and had them tell me that, you know, they wanted to interview me for an analyst job with the fund that they had just invested in. And this would have been back in the beginning of 2015 after I had spent quite some time in the accelerator. And uh, one thing led to another and I joined Finister full time and now cover off all of our life sciences companies. So beer was responsible, a great agricultural product. So, uh, you know, I think that's totally normal. So when you were making your first foray into ag tech, it was really as the whole sector kind of took off, right? Back in, I guess, 2013, something right, you Mm -hmm. know, maybe a little bit earlier than that. So you were really kind of one of the pioneers, I guess. I mean, it feels funny to say that because, you know, a lot of people that have come into ag tech since weren't around for the initial excitement post-climate exit. But yeah, I, I guess so. I think I remember leaving my pharma job for ag and having my friends tell me I was nuts. You know, this isn't a thing that people invest in. This isn't uh, a thing that will be important. But I think I did some back of the envelope thinking around how many people need to use agricultural products and how many people can access pharma products and decided that there was enough trend wise there that could justify, you know, leaving what seemed to be a relatively safe career for ag. My observation, and you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong, is that there are many women in the VC world, but not so many women in the VC world in ag tech. Is that correct or is that changing? I mean, how do you see it from a gender perspective? Funny enough, I actually kind of went through and took a look at a bunch of the ag tech funds websites more recently. So if you look at like top line numbers across all VC, the number of general partners, you know, at the partner level, the number of women involved in venture in general, I think are single percent points, right? But when you look within kind of ag specialist funds, it actually hovers around 12%. So we're a little bit better than broader VC, but it still doesn't mean we're great at it. I would say that there are very few female partners in ag VC, and I'm not quite sure why that is. There's certainly a lot of great female researchers and operational staff that I bump into within the corporates companies, but it could be due to the risk or you know how early ag tech venture really is in its life cycle to becoming a mature kind of investment class that it seems like there's fewer women involved. So do you think that's going to change? I think a couple of years ago, I don't remember which business publication put out that having more diverse thinking and diverse backgrounds and perspectives in your funds kind of improve outcomes. And we saw this hiring spree of women into operational roles to kind of check boxes and stuff like that. In ag, I actually think a lot of the investors thoughtfully went out and tried to hire women into their investment team. So you see, you know, the team at S2G has several young female investors like Christina a principal there. Cultivian has, you know, Amanda now as an MD. And I do think it's changing. When I joined the industry, I think Kirsten Stead, who at the time was with Monsanto Gross Ventures, and then maybe Andre Lease at Cycle were like the two partners I, I bumped into that were female. We're starting to see a lot more. I think Lori Manude, who used to be with BASF, now has own fund at, at One. So I do see it changing quite a bit. I would like to see more because I think the perspectives that women give to an ag and food investment could be informed differently than those that men make. And I know as an industry, we've been talking about consumer communication, you know, connecting with consumers quite a bit more, but I don't think you can do that when your investment base or your industry lacks a perspective of half the population. <laughs> great, great point. And by the way, we could probably do a whole pod, right, on <laughs> women in ag tech. And maybe I shouldn't be the host, but I, I think it's really interesting. And some of those names you mentioned, it's true. I love to hear, you know, as you say, some of these firms now have another generation or the next generation, I 
guess, who are climbing up the ladder and will take uh, really prominent roles in the next few years in those particular firms. But you mentioned about the consumer piece, and we were on a panel together recently where you said something that it made me think a lot because I'm coming from an agricultural business background. I always saw that the need for new agriculture was being driven by changes on the farm and the needs to be more efficient, the needs for farmers to have tools to overcome, you know, resistance and, and issues that they're facing every day. But one of the things you said was that the whole ag tech wave was largely driven by consumer changes, consumer preferences and consumer expectations. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, consumer demands for particularly sustainability, as well as more ethically produced food has certainly really ripped its way through the food tech space. And you see, you know, the demand for plant-based, all of these trends really taking off and driving the next generation of large, potentially very disruptive companies. And I think the really, really interesting piece about some of these consumer trends and demands that is pretty unique to the time that we're in right now is that people around my age, you know, millennials have now replaced Gen Xs and baby boomers as the leading workforce participants. We're coming into our prime spending years. And the funny thing about millennials is that we're weirdly culturally cohesive. We kind of grew up in this semi-digital space where we all had very similar experiences despite being geographically diverse. So when you talk to a millennial here in North America, they're actually very similar to millennials in Europe and in Southeast Asia. This kind of shared culture of a digital experience and things that mean a lot culturally is really unique to our generation. Funny enough, a lot of these demands are social ethos based, right? You're getting a much more cohesive global culture, a lot more of focus around ethical impact of how we spend our dollars. And this is impacting everything from the way consumer products need to be marketed to us, as well as the way food needs to be marketed to us. And when we think about the challenges that our grandparents and our parents faced within the ag and food sector, it really was a challenge around production, producing enough food, enough calories to feed people. And we were really good at that. The agri-food system is absolutely optimized to produce calories to feed lots of people. But now that our generation is coming in to become in the prime consumer group, we're demanding something a little bit different. We want quality. We want authenticity. We want understanding of where our food comes from. And these trends and these demands are affecting food and will have knock-on effects on the agricultural sector as well. This affects everything from the technologies that get invested in, because ultimately, you know, the money that venture funds invest has to come from somewhere. A large proportion of this comes from pension funds, which are now also being driven and invested in by people in my age group. And all of these things will have knock-on effects to both the technologies that are funded and the technologies that are required to service some of these demands. Yeah. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that push from the consumer translates onto the farm. I am sure, I know there are many growers out there who are already adapting. They see new market opportunities, both in what they're farming, also how they farm. How that is going to play out in the next couple of years is going to be really fascinating. It's really clear to see, as you say, from some of the companies which are being funded right now, what is really driving it. You mentioned geography. I can't resist asking about Canada. So we did have Khan Manhas from uh, Terra Mera a few weeks ago, but you're in a different part of Canada. What is the ag tech scene up there? 
I would have to say that the ag tech scene here in Canada is a lot more government funding driven than it is in the U.S. Historically, we've really been a sales and marketing outfit for a lot of agricultural companies. The kind of R&D expertise really was not housed within the corporate entities here in Canada, but was primarily housed within government research institutes, government funded agencies, things like that. So I would say we have a much more public funding spin on the ag tech ecosystem here. When you go to an ag tech event, it's not mostly people from agribusiness. It's actually a lot of researchers from universities, from extension universities, from government research institutes, and then a smattering of corporate folks. Hopefully that changes over time because it would be interesting to see some of that talent ported over to agribusiness instead of just basic research. Yeah, definitely slightly different spin than what we see in the US. Yeah. And as you say, a lot of government support or provincial support for these startups, which is not something we commonly see here in the US. And you do see in Europe to a degree, but it's really pronounced in Canada. You recently penned a piece around crop protection and particularly how pharma, pharmaceuticals with a P, not an F, are influencing some of the agricultural technologies that are being developed for the ag sector now or how they should do or could do in the future. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about that because we do see see as well a tendency to move away from crop protection chemistry at the moment. There's a lot of societal pressure, consumer pressure, also government regulation around chemistry. I personally feel it still has a role to play, but in terms of actually companies in the venture space who are producing new chemical products or new processes that will lead to new chemical products, can you tell us a little bit how you're seeing that? Do you see a future for chemistry, for instance? Absolutely. Like with vaccine technologies, we've become so good at preventing some of the challenges that the crop chemistry really addressed that a lot of us have forgotten how much of a difference it's made in our food production, in food security. Understanding and knowing that historical context, I absolutely think that there is still a very important role that synthetic chemistries are going to play in food production, particularly in the face of climate change moving forward. Now, how those chemistries come to market and what considerations need to be taken into account as those chemistries are developed is a very different thing. Social license is something that I don't think we spend a lot of time talking about or historically have spent a lot of time talking about within ag, but social license, particularly in 2021 and beyond, is an incredibly important piece of any business and ag not being any different. So understanding what social license is needed to develop crop chemistries, how to communicate the value proposition of these technologies to consumers, being transparent about how they're used and really having a sustainability and a safety lens in how you're developing these products will be absolutely important. I can use you know, the example of one of Finisterre's portfolio companies, AncoChem. They're not even close to bringing any of their products to market. They're just starting to enter field trials for some of their early leads. Even with that, they're already starting to think about the communications and the positioning piece of how they want to express the value proposition of their technology platform, not only to the broader industry or their farmer customers, but to the public as well. And I think that's a very fundamentally different change than the way things have historically happened in ag. And I think it's a good one. It's a movement towards a little bit more transparency and communication in our industry that we've historically not been very good at. Yeah. And plus, as you say, I mean, these companies, I imagine all of them now are really looking for chemistry, which exceeds the current bar in terms Mm -hmm. of human safety and environmental protection, right? So we know that regulations are very strict around the world and we're seeing lots of chemistry being removed from the market. So any company working now with a view to bring something to the market, say even in a decade, has to be anticipating that these regulations are going to get even stricter and that the consumer expectations 
expectations of this chemistry is going to be even more under scrutiny as well. Yep. It's absolutely something that they have to anticipate. They have to test for, they have to plan for, and they also have to, at the same time, wrap their heads around the idea that ag equipment is going to change quite a bit in the next decade as well. With that lens, understanding that you may not be doing broadcast spraying across an entire field anymore. There may be a lot of decreased usage because of precision spraying and so forth. Understanding those pieces as well and communicating that well to the consumer is key. Yeah. So in terms of the pharmaceutical business and what it can do to help or inspire technology in agriculture, what, what are you seeing? We're seeing crossover joint ventures like those of EarthBio, Adrian, which I know you're involved with. We're seeing platform discovery technologies like DNA encoded libraries, like what Enco is doing, being ported over. We're starting to see agribusinesses being a lot smarter about where they're sourcing their technology from. And this is a really exciting thing. If you look at some of the historical roots of two of what were originally the big six, Syngenta started out as a spin out from pharmaceutical companies, right? There are loose pharma roots in ag that I think should be revisited. And there's been so much funding that's gone into discovery on the pharmaceutical small molecule side. There's got to be some biology or life sciences based technologies we can borrow and port over. And I'm even aware of companies where it's going the other way, companies which were rooted in ag, which have an interesting approach, which are now actually spinning out into the pharmaceutical business as well. So happily, it's not just a one-way street <laughs> and uh, we see kind of a bit of crossover going uh, in both directions. I know you're seeing such a lot from where you sit as an investor, you're seeing all kinds of things right across the agri-food chain right now. I mean, what is jumping out of you? What kind of gets you up in the morning excited in terms of companies or approaches that many people don't know about even today. Funny enough, even though I'm a huge tech nerd, it's some of the business model innovation that's happening in the space. This push to decommoditize, the push to look for traits or technologies that improve quality. That's been really, really interesting and exciting for me. Over the last, I want to say, year or so, we've seen a number of companies in the plant sciences breeding space focus at quality improvements, whether you're talking about sound or neogenics or pairwise, all of these companies are focused on quality, not just broad supply chain based issues. I think that's incredibly interesting. There were a handful of companies kind of focused on that space maybe a little early on, like Calix looking at quality traits, plugging into the existing infrastructure. But we're seeing companies start to say, hey, maybe the supply chain or the current supply chain isn't really set up to incentivize for the kinds of technologies that consumers are demanding and that farmers want to adopt to create not only more sustainable production, but financially sustainable production. So we're seeing really interesting innovations on the business model side, both from plant sciences companies to food ingredients discovery companies also taking this semi-DTC model. And I think they're learning a lot from really the consumer product side, which has focused quite a bit on the sales innovation front on the direct-to-consumer piece, taking advantage of social media marketing and direct communications to do that. Really interested in seeing how this is going to play out in ag. One of our portfolio companies, Zcal, is looking at turning the supply chain on its head and focusing on quality, turning carbon into better nutrition or energy densification. So, you know, across the ag supply chain, we're seeing a focus on sustainability through not only technology, but business model innovation. Fantastic. Ingrid, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Adrian. AgTech360 is a product of North Carolina State University, SIRSA, the Center of Excellence for Regulatory Science in Agriculture, and the Southern IPM Center. 
This episode was produced by Kayla Pack Watson with host Adrian Percy and center director Dr. Denatia Seth Carley. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at AgTech360 and send us questions and comments to agtech360 at gmail.com. With AgTech360, we take a 360-degree view inside emerging agriculture technologies that matter. Thanks for listening.